Well, if you would turn with me and uh, your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, I would appreciate it. Uh, I believe next Sunday won't be the weird one where I teach both sides. I think I'm teaching high school and the Wabi's teaching middle school. And I know you're like, oh, we wanted the Wabi. Um, but I appreciate you guys being flexible with our new order of service and stuff. So I'll teach and then I'll close in prayer and then I will kick you out and you will go along your merry way, but I hope your week is going well. The, the handout, you can use it, you can not use it, whatever it might be. It helps me to go faster when I know you already have the format right in front of you. So uh, the title is Dealing with Divisiveness. And Paul is actually going to spend several chapters in this wonderful book on this very topic of divisiveness and what to do with it. If it was me writing this book, I probably would start with chapter 5, that gross immorality that's happening, uh, to root that out. But Paul is, is wiser than me, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew that chapter 5 happened because of divisiveness. He knows that the lawsuits happen because of divisiveness. He knows that the confusion about marriage and singleness happened because of divisiveness. He knows that the arguments about the sign gifts and about giftedness came because of divisiveness. Because if we all have the same mindset, if we all have the same goal, then all of those other things would be addressed. So we are dealing with divisiveness. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. And pause right there. Your mind starts thinking, wait, we as a church, we as a youth group, all agree? Yes, there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would bless the study of your word, that we would apply it to our heart, that we would listen and we would grow in Christ's likeness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to start at point two. So uh, maybe that's normal for you, maybe it's not. We're going to go to point two, which is called the examination. The examination is found in verses 11 and 12. Paul, who is far away, has been what? Informed concerning you, my brethren. Who has he been informed by? So that is A, the informants, not the tattletales. That doesn't really work here. It's the informants. It says by Chloe's people. All right, Chloe's people sounds like a vicious biker gang or something like that, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. We don't know a lot about Chloe's people, but what we do need to know is that Paul is not in Corinth. And Chloe's people 
have traveled to him, have written to him, somehow has communicated and got his attention, and they've said, Paul, we're in trouble. Paul, we need, we need help. And Paul, as the one who founded this church, who taught this church, is more than willing to write and is more than willing to come to the aid. But you have someone who reached out to them. B is the information. What is it that Chloe's people said? Well, everything that he's going to address, obviously, in this book, he knows because of them. But it says that there are quarrels among you. There are arguments, there are disagreements, there are divisions. And what are these quarrels about? Verse 12, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying. Well, what are they saying? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I of Cephas. I of Christ. Now what's, what's wrong with these things? Is it wrong to want to be associated with Paul or Apollos or even Jesus? Is that wrong? Essentially, they are drawing lines in the sand and they're coming up with their own groups and they're saying, look, we're the followers of Paul over here. Paul, remember that guy founded this church? The one who shared the gospel with us? Uh-huh. That's who we're following. So I don't know what you're doing over there, but we're following Paul. And they're going, oh, well, okay. All right, all right, you're of Paul. Paul came and he planted the seed and he planted the church, but it's Apollos that later came on and he watered and he shepherded. And they said, we're of Apollos. We're of Apollos. Paul's not even here. We're of Apollos. And others are like, oh, okay, I got you. We're of Cephas, who is Peter. Thank you. What, what does Peter have to do with this? Remember, Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. He was the head of the apostles. Oh, okay, you're of Paul. We're of Peter. What are you going to do with that? And others are like, well, no, no, no. We're, we're higher than you. We, we are of Christ. And you're like, well, that sounds good. But it had this prideful connotation to it. It would be like in our youth group, if you're like, hey, I, I am of Wabi. I am of Max, all right? I am of Dale. I am of Daniel. You know what? I am of John. That's who I'm going to follow. In our own church, you can see that there's different allegiances, right? In a sense where, oh, look, I'm just going to listen to what Tom says. Or you know what, Jonathan, I'm going to listen to Jonathan or Justin or Dusty or that weird family pastor that we have. All right. Sorry, Joe, I had to. All right. In our own church, it can be really easy to get our own little kingdoms and fiefdoms, right? Okay, children's ministry versus youth versus college versus 128 versus adult Sunday school. And while we know that the youth ministry is the best, okay, we don't flaunt it in front of them and lord it over in that sense. We want to be unified as a church. So there are problems going on. Because here's the reality. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were at war with God. And Titus explains that we were at war with one another. Hateful, hating one another. That's how the world acts. But when I turn from my sin and I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I lay down my pride, I lay down my weapons, I kneeled at the foot of the cross and I submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Now, I am a foot soldier in his kingdom. 
I am a child of God in his family. I am a member of the body of Christ. And so there should not be quarrels among us. There should not be disagreements and divisions among us. And when we think of the youth group, there's things that naturally come up. I'm homeschooled. I'm public schooled. I'm private schooled. I'm private schooled, but I call myself homeschooled. It's all really complicated how it works. All right? I like music. I like sports. I like, what's something else kids do? I like video games. And there's all these little things. I'm a freshman. Go freshman. I'm a senior. I'm big and bad, and you will submit to me. Whatever it is, right? I like to sit on the left. I like to sit in the middle, and whatever, on and on and on, all right? There's little things that go on. I like to dress like this. I don't like to dress like that. I listen to this music and whatever it is. It very easily, these silly divisions can come up and it can drive wedges between us rather than coming together with this unified vision of being one body to Christ. There is a danger even of having a youth group in a sense where you think this is the church. It's not. It's not. And that's why with our ministry application, we require that you what? consistently attend big church. Why? Because this is not church. This is a part of church. That's our main worship. And we want you to be part of that main worship with younger and older generations all coming together. But these quarrels led to disastrous implications for the church. Like I said, they're suing one another. They're, they're fighting. They're bickering. And this examination that Paul has done on this church has led him now to correct and to condemn them. And that's the theme of the book, correction and condemnation. Paul has found this information to be true, and now he's going to act on it. So naturally, we now go to point one on our outline, the exhortation. The exhortation. Now, I exhort you, brethren, and you're like, oh, that's, that's how you got that point. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's start with that. He's going to appeal to them, but he's not saying, just, don't just do it on my behalf. Remember that Jesus who lived for you, who died for you, who rose, who's reigning at the right hand of the Father, who's coming back for you to establish his, his rule and kingdom. Remember him? He is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is Lord, which we all know means master. Remember him? I exhort you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word exhort means to call. It means to beg. It means to entreat. In Mark 6, 56, we see that same word. Wherever Jesus entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him, exhorting him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. I mean, imagine if you had an illness that was going to result in your death or if you were broken and couldn't walk or lame and someone brought you to Jesus and he's right there and all you had to do was touch him. Jesus, help me, help. You wouldn't be like, oh, um, didn't work. No, you, you, would, you would be all over that. This is a big emphasis. 
a, a begging of, a, a commanding of that he is doing. I exhort you. And there are three aspects to this exhortation. A, a commitment to one-mindedness. Now I entreat you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Do you all agree? Now, it's not saying you, you all have to agree on the, the, you know, what you're having for lunch, what you're having for dinner, or what sport you want to play, or whatever it might be. You need to be a people of agreement, of people of unity. You know, one of my best friends for a long time, his name is Justin Hunter. And since I am Justin, we call him Hunter. This is how it works, right? But we have a saying because he and I think differently on just about everything. Just about everything. That if we finally agree on something where two Justins agree, it must be so. Because it rarely ever happens, all right? And that's just, we say it and we move on. Our elders are a great example of agreement and unity. There are decisions that come up. Uh, do we give this money for benevolence? Do we hire this person? Do we, do we do this? Do we do that? So what will happen is someone will present something and they'll make a motion. And someone will, someone second the motion. And I like to go second. It's kind of cool. But sometimes we kind of, you know, three people say second. So I like there's f three seconds, but that's all right. And then we call for a vote. All right. If there's any uh, discussion, we have some discussion, we call for a vote, and it says all in favor say aye. And every single time, basically, what, it, what happens? Everyone goes, aye. This last elders meeting, two said no. That never happened before, at least since I've been on the, the elder board. So we actually have a document written in place that we've all agreed to submit to, right, for the sake of unity. That if there is a vote, because we want a unanimous decision, that the dissenting elders would go pray, would study, and they would come back at a later meeting and they would present their case and we would vote again. But what happens if we vote again and nothing changes? If the dissenting elders in the minority would then agree to vote, to approve. Well, what do you mean? They lay aside what they were thinking and planning and their conscience in that for the greater good. Otherwise, one person could do what? They could hold up every single decision ever because they would just vote against. And so we've put those things in place for the sake of what? Agreement. For the sake of unity. And it's, it's very rare. God's been so good to our church. I mean, we have some elders that are a little bit older than others. I think maybe, maybe early 80s, mid-70s, something around there, right? We have some that are in their 30s. Wide range. Some have a, a ginormous amount of kids in their family, all right? Some with, with very few kids in their family. All these things, wide, uh, different range. But we agree because it's so important to us that God has made that. But whose mind do we get to follow? Who do we pick to follow? I mean, let's throw out something as simple as summer camp. On summer camp, you're excited. You want to go on that. But imagine if we didn't know where we were going, how much it cost or what we were doing. And then we just got in a big room. And we said, express your feelings. Let's brainstorm this one out. Until we all agree exactly where we're going to stay, how we're going to get there, and what we're going to do. How well do you think that would work? It wouldn't. 
okay? You even get to the event sometimes, and you've agreed to go to the event, but you don't like it. You're not not agreeing with that. We have to have one. So unfortunately for you, you do what I plan to do. Now, I take your thoughts and things in consideration, and I pull you and I ask you stuff, because otherwise you're not going to go on the trip, and because I love you, I want you to enjoy and have a good time, all right? Well, when it comes to the church, we go back to the mind of Jesus. I'm not asking you to come to my mind. I'm not asking you to come to Tom's or to Jonathan's. Or I'm asking you to go back to the very mind of Christ. Well, how do we know the mind of Christ? How many of you already went to the first service? Ah, you, y'all are the half-asleep people. Well, it's been spoiled for you. We know the mind of Christ because Jesus explained the word that was already there brought new revelation, and then he handpicked and affirmed those that would finish the revelation. So we have the Bible right here. And if you do what the Bible says, and if you do what the Bible says, and you do what the Bible says, we all have the mind of Christ, who is our Lord, who is our master, our commanding officer, right here. But you have to commit to it. If you are not committed to unity, you will not practice unity. You will not. Now, some of you are not going to make that commitment because you don't love Jesus. You are dead in your sins. You need to repent and believe in Jesus and become part of the family of God. But Christian, we must commit to one-mindedness. And secondly, we must have a hatred of disunity. The exhortation is a commitment to one-mindedness, be a hatred of disunity. It says, and there be no divisions among you. No divisions among you. That is a commitment. It's a commitment. Uh Uh-uh, no way, no how. It's not going to happen in this church. It's not going to happen in this group. We don't want disunity. We don't want divisions. I hate the idea. Look, I don't eat cauliflower because it's gross and it tastes bad. So I don't have a problem when there's cauliflower there. I just walk away. All right? That's how it works. Disunity is cauliflower to me. I'm just going to walk away. Now you, you're under the whole, you know, rule of your parents, honor and obey. They give you cauliflower and tell you to eat it. Eat it. All right? And then, Lord willing, one day you'll grow up and get married and, you know, the dynamics change and you don't have to eat cauliflower anymore. How many of you, anyone like cauliflower? Oh, my. You people are much more healthy than me, okay? But it's not, it's a commitment to one-mindedness, but it's a hatred of the sin of disunity. You have to have both. Have to have both. When you see something crop up, you want to address it. You want to help. You want to pray for it because it hurts you. You hate it so much. We are the people of God. If the people of God can't love and forgive one another, then how are we going to further his kingdom? How are we going to take Christ to the nations if we can't do those things? See a willingness to be restored. A willingness to be restored. Verse 10, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made 
complete. This word complete here is used in Matthew 4.21. Remember how a number of the disciples were fishermen? And it said they had to mend their nets. They had to complete their, neck, their nets. The church is broken, right? It's a broken bone that needs to be set in place. It needs to be complete. It means to equip, put in order, mend what has been broken. We need to look at our own church. Are there divisions? Are there, um, you know, relationships that have been broken and that are rubbing, that are irritating? Are there things in our church that we need to work to? Obviously in Corinth, I mean, they're suing each other for crying out loud. That needs to happen. And sometimes when we talk about unity, we think that we're wishy-washy and loving and accepting and all of those things. Real unity comes with a willingness to look in the mirror, to repent of your own sin, and then to graciously and lovingly confront your brothers and sisters that are in Christ. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You have two friends. You love those two friends. This one did something to this one. This one was wrong and this one's hurt. Analyzing, looking at your own life, repenting of sin in your life, you go to this friend in love and gentleness and call them to repentance and to restore that friendship. That's your role. That's tough, isn't it? That's tough because we got to take care of our own walk well, who are you to tell me? But then we don't want to confront people because maybe they'll reject us or maybe they'll hurt us. You do what you're called to do and then it's on them. And a lot of times you have very soft-hearted, Christ-loving people in this group. They'll thank you for that. Is there anything I can do to help mediate this? Because we know that we need forgiveness. We know that we need love and we need to be practicing those things and asking for those things. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul writes, finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We have a God who is a God of love. He's a God of peace. He's a God of harmony. And as we seek to be like him, that's what our church should look like. And you think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, three individual persons in one, living in perfect and complete harmony, and that's what we should look like. It says, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Wow, there's some tough stuff coming up ahead in these next couple chapters. And that leadership, that church, they better be on the same page. And if not, there's going to be heartache and it's going to be difficult. So that's the exhortation. Thirdly, we have the explanation. We had the exhortation, we had the examination, and now we have the explanation. What is the explanation? Well, to help explain all of this, there are first of all three questions to reorient their thought process. When Paul would write a letter... Obviously, the leaders of the church would get it and they would read it. And then they would tell the church, we have a letter from Paul. And the church would all show up that Sunday and, Paul, 
ah, we love Paul. Let's do this. And then they read this baby and they're like, oh. Like the dude who had had sexual relationship with his stepmom. I wonder if he was like, huh, that's me. He's writing about me. Or someone who has a lawsuit against someone else and he reads that part and they're like, I want to get away. You ever seen those commercials? This is awkward. So they're all excited. Yeah, Paul, let's go, baby. And then he's reading it and they're going, oh. And again, remember, he, he was very gracious and very gentle in his start. You are a saint, you're holy one, you're sanctified. There are genuine believers here. I imagine at that moment, there was repentance going on just from chapter one. And later we hear that the church does listen and the church, so they're probably heartbroken at this point already. But there might be some that are like, yeah, but come, you don't know him. You don't know him. Let's, let's, hypothetical, let's take a family for a moment. We know that your family is grace, love, peace, unity, joy. You say you have a mom and dad and you have siblings. And you know you are, you know, loving, caring, gracious one another, unified. But let's pretend for a moment that there's, you know, jealousy among siblings. Let's pretend that the, the younger child is, is jealous because the older child gets more privileges. Or that the older child is jealous of the younger child because they are the best child, which is just truth and reality. The youngest child's always the best child. That's how it works, okay? Or one of them got to ride shotgun and the other one didn't. And that one got to have a sleepover and that one didn't. And oh, mom, you always do this. And oh, you let them stay out later. And all those little things that feed into what? Disunity. Mom makes a delicious meal. You don't want that meal. It's, it's a meal of cauliflower. What are you going to say? She just spent all this time unified, loving, all those things. Dad, the head of the family, loving his wife, wife submitting to husband, leading and guiding their delightful little children who are honoring and obeying first time with a happy heart. And think of what your family can bring and represent. But you're like, you don't know my sister. She steals my clothes and wears them. Okay? Sometimes that could be creepy and awkward depending on the situation. Your clothes. Okay, well, if she wronged you, loving, gracious, forgiving, you can confront those things. You can get mom involved, that type of stuff. Thinking of the family dynamics help us understand the church dynamics. So here we might have some people that are saying, I don't know about this. Really? I got I to gotta be unified with these people? Well, he asked three questions. Has Christ been divided? No. Are there, are there different little factions of Jesus running around? No. You have the universal church, which is all believers. You have the local church, which is a committed group of believers that are gathering together locally. Christ has not been divided. Then he goes on to say, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? You I follower of Paul's and whatnot. No, it was Jesus who lived the perfect life. It was Jesus who died on the cross. It was Jesus that rose again. It was Jesus that is going, it's Jesus that's going to return. So you simply must have the mind of Jesus. It's not about Paul. And then he goes on and he asks, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Well, uh, no. And he could say, were you baptized in the name of Apollos? Were you baptized in the name of Peter? No, you weren't. 
You were baptized into the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we have, lastly, one tra- a rabbit trail that has a point. And I don't know if the kids these days use the word rabbit trail. Let me give you an illustration. In ninth grade, we had Mrs. Harris as our English teacher. And sometimes she would try to teach us English. Yeah, I know. So we would talk about her dog or her kids or something like that. We'd ask a question. And what do you know? We weren't talking about grammar anymore. She was rabbit trailing about the excursion she had with her dog or something like that. And we're like, yes, rabbit trail. Here, it seems like Paul just like shoots off in a random uh, tangent. But he doesn't. It still feeds into this passage. It says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why? He didn't want to baptize more people? So that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Imagine that. I was baptized by Paul. You were baptized by someone inferior. Paul's an apostle. He baptized me. You should listen to me. And that's not the point. That's not what he's saying here. He goes on and he says, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Side note, rabbit trail. Isn't this really cool to see how scripture comes? So some people think that like the inspiration of scripture is like dictating. Like Paul is a robot and the Holy Spirit is making him write it. Well, the Holy Spirit knows how many people, how many of them that Paul baptized, right? But Paul can't remember that. And it's not really an important thing. So he's just writing. He's like, look, I'm so glad I only baptized these two guys. And then he's like, ah, nuts. I don't have an eraser. Well, I did also baptize these people. All right, true, no error, beautiful. He goes on to say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul is simply a servant of Jesus. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Go bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he said, yes, Lord. And he went out and he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And then when he would leave, there are other members of the body of Christ that did the next thing. They did the baptizing. They did the teaching. They did the discipleship that he left them to do. He is just a spoke in the wheel of victory. He is just a part of the body of Christ. And that's what you are. And as we close, I want you to examine yourself, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, sometime this week, examine yourself to see how and if you struggle with disunity. Can you genuinely say that you have a commitment to one-mindedness? Can you genuinely say you have a hatred of disunity and a willingness to restore relationships? Can you really say that? Sometimes people would say, oh, youth group, you have, you have cliques, cliques in the youth group. And I call those friend groups. You should have friend groups. Remember, Jesus had the 12 disciples. The 13th dude over there is like, oh, man. He picked 12. Why? Because he can't pick everybody. And then he had three that were part of the inner circle. But he still wanted those 12 to be unified into function. And you have friends, and I want you to have friends, and I want you to have close friends. And when you have that birthday party, and mom says you can invite four people, what do you have to do? Invite four people. Does that mean you hate the fifth person? No, that means your mom doesn't like the fifth person. I would have invited you, but my mom doesn't like you. No! Look, you can't invite everybody to everything. Have friend groups, but 
come on Sunday, come on Wednesday with the idea of inclusiveness and love. Hey, come play this game with us. Hey, do you want to sit here? Hey, sorry, seat's taken. No. Doesn't matter what school they go to. It doesn't matter what grade they're in. It doesn't matter if they like sports or music or whatever it is. Love and unity is the goal. And that starts with your own heart. And that starts with you loving and graciously reminding others of the unity that we should have. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you so much. What a beautiful passage of scripture. May we deal with divisiveness how Paul commands us to. And may we follow you always. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.